All right, everybody. So today we have Matt Terry on the podcast. How you doing, Matt? Good, Dave. What's up, man? So this was a little bit different, only in the sense that so you reached out to me. And oftentimes when somebody reaches out to me, it's like a total gimmicky thing, right? It's like, try this like new fat loss tea or some crap like that, right? Um, the last person that reached out to me, not the last one, but like probably one of the bigger name ones was that guy. If you happen to see the podcast, John Jaquish with his like X3 band, which is oh, yeah. interesting because the dude's got like a million followers. So that was unusual. Um, and then that turned into a whole, whole mess. I made a follow-up video, all that stuff. So uh, I, saw, I, would, I saw something about that. Yeah. 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 I don't think that's going to happen here, but um, <laughs> no. you have, you know, your own credentials. I mean, both in terms of education, but also performances and, and competitions and stuff. So I'm guessing most people watching don't know who you are at this point. So why don't you just mm -hmm. kind of get into some of your background there? Sure. So <clears throat> my primary background was Olympic lifting. So I was, I was really good at, uh, uh, football in high school and college. And I was really overweight. And so my parents got me a trainer when I was really young. I think like most people, like I just instantly got bit felt like the iron bug. And I won, I won my first state title, I think in powerlifting when I was like 13. And I think I benched like 275 and I deadlift like 385. And I weighed like, I think I weighed 174 and I trained for like six months. At 13. And so my, my coach was like, well, and at the time I had actually done 315 touch and go. But I, I had like, it was my first powerlifting meet and I didn't really understand some of the techniques and mm -hmm. I didn't bring a spotter. So I, I did, there's a lot of things I kind of screwed up. And uh, so I missed a couple of attempts, but that, that kind of started everything. And I kind of realized like, oh, I might be kind of good at this. And then when I started looking up, which in full disclosure, I was the only one in my weight class when I won yeah. my title, which is kind of funny. But when I looked at the ages above and below me, I was still beating almost everyone, even up to like 18. And I was like in, in those weight classes mm -hmm. and I was like, well, maybe there's something to this. So anyway, just through football, I just kind of really got into it. And I started competing in Olympic lifting when I, I think I won my first national championship and that was like 15. And then, so that kind of took me to, I was a resident athlete at the Olympic training center and I competed in Olympic weightlifting for seven years at very high levels. Um, I won the 2000 Olympic trials. I was a three-time national champion. I competed in the world championships, Pan Am games. I've medaled everywhere. Um, and for me, it was just more like strength sports were always my background. And, and the thing that I really felt interesting about Olympic lifting is even though it's so technical, it's not as strength based as people think. And looking back on it, I think retrospectively, I was in the wrong sport because even though my Olympic lifts were, were good, they weren't like amazing, mm -hmm. but we'll talk about that in a second. We see kind of drugs get involved. I think it kind of skews people perspective. But when I retired, I was, I think I did my best lifts when I was like 20 or 21 and I snatched 155 kilos and I cleaned jerk 195. I was a 94 kilo lifter and I back squatted 280 kilos for like a triple. And I could stand in military press like 140 kilos. So I was just like strength levels and stuff. Like I, I could bench 400 for like a set. I actually tore my pec doing a set of four on okay. bench press at 405. And my, wow. my Olympic coach was extremely pissed. He even allowed me to do it because it's not even related to Olympic lifting. Right. So my background was just, just really strong there. And that's just kind of what got me into like training. And then my background in education is I have a degree in exercise science with nutrition. I started as a dietitian. So I've kind of morphed from there. And, and now I do a lot more of like functional lab and, and that kind of thing in terms of monitoring people's like blood work and that type of thing. So it's kind of what's taking me up through here is just my background has just always been a really genetically gifted, very strong person and everything always came really naturally and I just really liked it. So for me, it was really easy. It was just, you know, my passion fed, you know, like obviously my sports, but because I was so good at it, it, it always fed itself, right. but I was really overweight and I was like really overweight when I was a kid. Um, I was probably when, when I, like I said, when I benched that, when I was 13, um, I was also like 4'11 and I had like a 44 inch <laughs> waist. That was like a bowling ball. 
So for me, like when I got in lifting, it was really more for weight loss and I just wanted to lose weight. And and it kind of found that I was actually really strong. And that's kind of what just losing weight and feeling better about myself and just kind of that whole positive thing. That's really kind of what got me into just helping other people. That's kind of where I've been this whole time. Awesome. So what was the heaviest your body weight got up to? You said, I know you compete at 94. I got, I got, yeah, I competed at 94, but when I played college football, so I kind of, I did it backwards to the fact that I played football in high school and I was really good. But then I had either opportunity to go to the training center or play college football. So I went to training center first and then played college football later. So I kind of did it backwards. Um, but when I played college football, I actually got up to 228 at, and I'm 5'6". Okay. And then when I was Olympic lifting, the highest I got was 220. But I, it, towards the end of my career with Olympic lifting, the problem was I was becoming so heavy for my weight class. I couldn't, there was such a big jump to the next one. Like I couldn't compete with like, because I was like the shortest light super in the world by a yeah. long ways. And oh, like wow. the next one, I think it was 94. And at the time you could go up to 99 in terms of 99 kilos, but I was giving up like another 20 pounds. So I yeah, was just right. get killed. So I was kind of stuck in between. And that's kind of why I quit. I just injuries and just, I was just getting too big for my weight class and I just didn't want to go to the next one. So I just kind of hung it up. And how old are you now? I will be 43 this year. Okay. So long time in this sport. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, man. Like I've talked about this from like an academic side as far as like who's big on social media. And then you have some people who are highly published like Brad Schoenfeld. But, you know, you have other people who have you know published hundreds of papers and are really like high in, in their territory, but people don't know about them. Right. And then, you know, like it's basically like who looks the best, but also just who promotes themselves. Right. And, and all of that. And so I think it'll always be the case that there's kind of that social proof people have that, you know, shows that they know what they're talking about. Um, I guess the nice thing is nowadays it's, there is also the recognition for people who know what they're talking about, who maybe don't have the best genetics in the world and things like that. I mean, obviously, as you said, if you're doing that at 13 years old, you have top, top tier genetics, right? So, um, you know, you could argue either way, but I think it's still good to like get that out there because one of the things that people don't think about is that because people gravitate towards what they're good at most people like they'll say like well just because they're really big doesn't mean that they you know have pushed the hardest or that they know what they're doing which is true the other side of that coin though is that typically if you don't have good genetics you will never take things to the same point that somebody with great genetics has because it frankly it, it would just be a bad idea right if, if you were to try to go from you know, like your 95th like you know best version of yourself to like a hundredth percentile it just there'd be so much involved, like you took it to like a national level, right? So it makes sense. But if you have, you know, 20th percentile of genetics, you should probably not spend your entire life doing that, right? So you won't have mm-hmm. those experiences of pushing that hard, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's true. And I think you see that too. As you get in the upper echelons of sports, you, you really, especially at that level, you realize like the small, like the small amounts separate you by so much. Mm-hmm. And some of those things, like some of those athletes and just some of the stuff that even some of the extremism will do with the training and even some of the drug use is, is, is pretty, I mean, it's there were, when I was in the training center, they did a survey and it was basically saying like, um, you know, if you could win a gold medal in the next year, but you would also die when the next year, would yeah. you do it? And over 60% of people said yes. And I was like, Oh my God, I was like, these people's priorities are so screwed, but that's an athlete's mindset. I've seen that survey talked about for probably a decade now. What, do you know where that comes from? I don't even know where it came from, but it was around the time when there, because they had these posters all over the wall when you'd walk into sports medicine. It, it was kind of like, it was kind of, it was kind of eerie the way they did it. Cause it was about transitioning out of your career. 
So it's, okay. it was like these few poster series of like, you're not going to be doing this forever kind of thing. Yeah. And what do you do when you're done and life after sport? And I was always like, why is that relevant? And as I got older, I was like, oh, it's super relevant. Like, I yeah, need right. a job now. Like, I need to get out of here. <laughs> like, I don't want to be 40 years old and like living in my parents' basement lifting weights. Yeah. That was one of the things I remember if you saw the film, um, Bigger, Faster, Stronger. Uh, and, and I think it was uh, Chris Bell, right? And, you know, they were saying, he's like, am I going to be this guy? And there was the guy like in his van, like the powerlifter dude. He's yeah. like, well, if I can still out deadlift you. And he's like 40, 50 years old. And it's just like, man, yeah. like, and you know, yeah. I just turned 30. So it's not like I'm like old, but even then the perspective compared to when I was 20 is, is just like, and what matters. And I was always a pretty level-headed person. And even then it's still pretty different. So I imagine when 40, you know, you really got to consider those things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For sure. So you mentioned uh, you obviously when you started you were natural at some mm-hmm. point i guess you had to cross over um mm-hmm. and i guess now you said you're on trt is that right yes yep so, i started so i'm 40 i started trt at 42 so about like six months ago i've started i started TRT. okay so mm-hmm. what, what was the progression like when did you make the leap to say okay to be really competitive i had to go mm-hmm. the enhanced route so i never i never took anything when i competed um okay. i was always natural um, so I never took anything until I was, uh, like I said, six months ago. So I've competed naturally or trained naturally for almost 30 years. Okay. So that was kind of, for me, I wanted to do it when I was younger. And I definitely thought about doing when I was competing because I definitely had some teammates who did it. Um, and so it, it was really attractive. And, and, you know, when you would go to like, say the world championships or whatever, and you talk to other guys from other countries and, and you know, you'd start to become friends with them. And they would be very open about like extremely open about what they took. Like I had one guy who he was the time, um, his name was Marcus and I can't remember his last name, but he was, um, he was from Slovakia and he was like their, their, um, he was actually, I think at the time their world champion and he could snatch 200 kilos in training. Like he snatched my cleaner when he came over and he was, in, he looked like a, like a young skinny Arnold and he sounded like he was super cool. Went back to his room, opens his, his uh, backpack and it's, just all full of gear, like just all <laughs> full of gear. And he's at the training center. And I'm like, you know, you get drug tested here. And he's like, eh. like, he was like, whatever. And he was like, so what do you take? I was like, we don't take anything. He's like, what do you mean you don't take anything? Like they either thought we were lying or they thought we were idiots, but either way, they just thought it was stupid. And so you started to see some of the, some of the drug use and some of the other stuff. And it was really tempting, but I just didn't at the time. I just felt like I didn't, I wanted to see what I could do naturally without it. And I felt like I would have always second guessed myself if I had taken it. Um, and I was always kind of against it. And honestly, really what probably changed my mind was when I watched Bigger, Faster, Stronger, which is what, you know, you just referenced. And just the perspective change of just like, it's not really level playing field. And this isn't something to justify it, but when you're at that level, you see what guys do and you're like, well, how could someone, how could someone do that? And I'm like, well, when you have money on the line, you have endorsements on the line, you have a career on the line. Like forget like gurus who have their own methodologies. That's not what you're talking about. You're talking about athletes who's like, that's their livelihood. You know what I mean? And they'll do anything and extremely competitive. So I also didn't want to do it at the time because I felt like I would abuse it because my personality is I will do everything to the end. Like if I take a little bit of caffeine, I'll take like 2000 milligrams a day. So it's like never, you know what I mean? Like there's never a zero for me or middle ground. It's always zero or a thousand. So I didn't want to get involved in because I was afraid that I would do something stupid. And when I was young, I was just kind of against it. And then as I got older, I, I thought, you know, well, if you just take care of yourself and you eat well and you, and you do what you should do, like your testosterone level should stay up naturally. And mine still stayed up. Like before I went on TRT, my, my total testosterone has always been very high. I mean, even the highest I've ever seen was 936. And that was six months ago before I went on TRT. But my free testosterone has always been very low. It was seven. So, I mean, I was just like 
and if you look at the the reference ranges and you look at the the part of the research on the free testosterone, you know, most guys say they feel better when it's between like 25 to 35. Mm -hmm. And so I just had my labs redone and my free is at 24 and I feel amazing. And, and part of the reason why I decided to transfer and, and become go on TRT as I age is I was really researching it more for the joint benefits. And I had some clients who were on it. I have several clients who are on it and I have several friends in the area who are on it. And a lot of them were saying, you know, like, man, my joints just don't hurt anymore. And the energy, you know, and just like, just kind of like the overall well-being. And I was really more, as I'm aging now, I was really more attracted to it from that standpoint. Like I didn't really, I've always been big. I've always been really strong. I still train. Like I'm obviously not as big and as strong as I was then, but I don't train that way. I mean, I was training like yeah. three or four times a day then. I mean, I train once a day now and I'm 40 and I walk 25,000 steps a day because I have a full client load. I'm always on my feet. Like you can't recover from that stuff. Yeah. So you can't train that way anymore. But I just noticed like just my knees were hurting. My back was hurting. I was just really tired all the time, no matter what I did. And I mean, I was like going to bed at nine, getting up at six, like doing everything you can possibly do, reducing yeah. my client's schedule, like doing so much. So a normal person would never do all these things to try and increase their testosterone or you know, feel better. So I was like, well, I'll try it. And yeah, like the first week I did it, I felt tremendously better. Like now, this it, is you just, just testosterone, no like yeah. growth hormone. I don't do, or nope. Like nope. I don't do anything. And I take 120 milligrams of testosterone sipping eight a week. Yeah, and I do. I think, so I like to inject daily. I found that works best for me. Go ahead. Yeah, well, that means a couple of things. So one, I do know people who say like, you know, even if because like I have a few actually surprising number of clients on TRT, even like younger clients. And, you know, one guy is on on Decanoate, which, you know, he injects like once every three months, which I, I'm, I'm shocked that he actually says his levels are pretty stable in blood work. But I know people who are on like Cipionate or Nanthate and they'll take, you know, like a bolus dose once a week, which is really how it's recommended as far as like from like the medical literature. Uh, mm -hmm. But, you know, they'll peak and then they'll go down. So a lot of times people do prefer four to seven times a week. Um, mm -hmm. But most of the time, I, I mean, I don't hear too many people talk about the joint benefits alone unless they add like some growth hormone or, or DECA. Certainly mm -hmm. energy, libido, um, strength if they've gone down, although your testosterone seemed like it was fairly normal. Uh, did you notice a subsequent drop in SHBG or did you just notice that your total went up so much that it's still proportional? So my SHBG just really hasn't changed. It's always been around 60 or 70. So okay. it's always pretty decent. What was interesting is, so the lab range, because I pull my lab at the lab corp, uh, it only went to 1500 on the total mm -hmm. testosterone. So like that's as high as my new levels are. Yeah. But what I thought was interesting was um, my estrogen was originally 38. And and if you look at the people like, oh, well, it's a little high. I'm like, it's actually not that high in relation to how high that natural testosterone is because no, there's a ratio, right? So it went from 38 to 39 on 120 milligrams. Like I didn't, I didn't wow. like, there's no rum taste. Like I don't have any estrogen conversion. Like, and I, and again, all I do is I do 15 milligrams, like six days a week. And I do 30 on Mondays. So I just, okay. so that comes out to 120 a week. Yeah. And that's just what I've done since I started. My goal was to do as little as I possibly could without. And, and that's the thing. I think if you look at a lot of the TRT research and they follow what's probably current, it's more frequent injections, more smaller doses. And then also the argument between is it going to be like sub Q versus IM? I've done both. Yeah. I've tracked both versus labs. I actually have some female clients who are on TRT um, and, and is testosterone is part of it. And they actually do do injections as part of the therapy for their practitioner, but they won't do intramuscular because they don't like it. So they all do sub Q and I monitor all their labs. And so either way it works because some people argue like, you know, like in terms of injection, it doesn't matter. Um, some might, some people might definitely respond better to other things, but um, I, I, I primarily do intramuscular. I just rotate between shoulders. Yeah, the literature I've seen on sub Q versus intramuscular wasn't super compelling. I mean, there, I've only seen a couple studies on it. One suggested 
lower uh, aromatization, but there's obviously mm -hmm. fat cells, obviously, if you're doing sub Q, so there could be more aromatase. I've seen people report both. Have you noticed any consistent trend or not really? So what I saw, there's actually some studies if you actually look on um, like essentially gender transformations or transgenders when they're using, because in those studies, they only do sub Q. And they and I actually saw the study where they broke down how much they were giving these women who are trying to transfer to men, and they would look at their subsequent blood levels. And some of these women, like I think this one of them, they were giving them like it was the study was between twenty five to a hundred, I believe it was a week. And some of the women on a hundred a week were like, I saw one she had like nine hundred in terms wow. of like total time. I mean, it was crazy. So some women really respond to it, but they were only doing sub Q. They weren't doing any IM. And they were tracking pre and post. So that's kind of interesting. It's interesting that your levels are so high on only 125, because, you know, mm -hmm. for people who are listening, who maybe don't know that much about it. I mean, generally speaking, you're going to be completely shut down on that level. So it's not like, oh, well, he was at 900. So he added the 125 on top of that. It's like, well, no, if you, if you have a normal human body, <laughs> you should be producing mm -hmm. almost none. And mm -hmm. normally 125 would maybe get you in that thousand to 1200 range. Mm -hmm. And that is the one thing that when I was doing the research, when you're doing like trying to really go on the lower end of TRT, there is a, there is a tightrope there because like you said, if you take testosterone, you shut off SH and LSH, you're not going to make it anymore. So my testicles shrink. But then the second side of that is if you go too low on your TRT dosage, you, you shut off your own production and now you're not taking enough to replace it. And that's where some guys I know start to feel like really like crap. Like I had one client who's like, well, I take 50 a week. I don't notice anything like, cause you're taking 50 a week yeah like you're probably actually screwing yourself up so no i I've, I've actually fluctuated between 100 and 120 just kind of back and forth my goal mm. is to try and do as low as i can sure sure so you said you stopped competing at 21 years old um in olympic lifting i did okay and then you competed mm -hmm. did you, you powerlift it or after that so i did powerlift after that and i did natural bodybuilding after that so the last show okay. i actually competed in natural bodybuilding was six years ago Oh, wow. Okay. Mm -hmm. So um, I've competed up naturally until I was, I mean, up until now, I'm no longer natural, quote unquote, but the last time I competed was six years ago and I would have competed again. And just, I had a stomach surgery and a bunch of just digestive issues. So it took me out of the scope for like probably three years. And wow. so I'm just really kind of getting back into it for the last couple of years. So when you were competing in powerlifting, what were your best big three there? So did those when I was younger, but my best was, um, so these would be more touch and go. These aren't like actual, like in terms of uh, meat competition standards, but when you're doing Olympic lifting, you know, Olympic lifting squats are always going to meet powerlifting standards because they're ass to grass. So it, it doesn't matter. You know what I mean? In terms of depth. Yeah. Um, but for 450 was my bench bench at 220. Um, I did squat 700 with a belt and knee wraps, no suit. And my deadlift has always been pretty poor. Um, I've never actually deadlifted more than 550 before. That is interesting. Wow. That's such a, I can't, point. I just, I can't deadlift that much and I've got a good grip, but the problem is just my low back. I just, um, it's just not strong enough. Wow. Yeah. I, I think I would imagine the height is a factor there too, right? I mean, you said you're five, six, so, you know, for benching and squatting, especially if you're kind of barrel chested, which, you know, I've seen your pictures, you definitely are, you know, the range of motion there is obviously going to be beneficial compared to if you have, I don't know what your arm span is, but generally speaking, not as beneficial for deadlifts. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's part of the problem with the deadlift is it's just when you're shorter and you have short arms, you have a longer pole, right? Mm -hmm. But yeah, I'm built to squat and deadlift. I'm just not, or sorry, squat and bench. I'm just not built to deadlift. Right. Um, so you said you're, even though you're competing in powerlifting later, your strongest was when you were younger. Is that because you lost a lot of weight or? Yeah. So when I was, that was what I would say when I competed in powerlifting was post-college football and was at my biggest. And, and then after that, I kind of tailored down and dieted a little bit more. Cool. 
All right. And then as far as competing in natural bodybuilding, what organizations did you do and what did you compete at like weight wise? Um, so it's like the, I think it's like the NAF. It's a natural one. Um, I did the natural golds classic here in Kansas city. Um, and so they don't actually, I competed it. I cut from two fifteen to one sixty nine, and that took about seven, eight months. Okay. Um, and you can actually see on, on my website, I actually have the before and after I kind of talk about what I did just to talk about the process, but you can see like the, the transformation in terms of what I did. Um, but I was, so was it, it was, uh, it's based off height. So you have a tall class, short class, whatever. So I was in the short class, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that particular federation, they don't use weight and for a bodybuilding, they just do by height. And okay. so I was in the short class and then I did, um, I was at the novice obviously cause it was my first show and I took second and I got third Mr. Kansas and I took second overall. Um, mm-hmm. but the thing I no- I noticed from that show was I was, when some of the guys who were competing, were getting to know each other. I was probably 20 or 25 pounds heavier than every single guy in my class. I mean, they were most really? of them like 140, 140. I mean, they were so shredded and tiny weight. I mean, it was, I was, <laughs> I was so much bigger than they were yeah. um, and not near as lean, but, um, but it was a good learning experience. So if you got as lean as they were, what weight do you think you would have had to come in at? I would, I would say probably 158 or 155. Yeah. I mean, and I still would have been much bigger, but man, they were, I mean, some of those guys were legitimate, like probably sub under sub five, I'm just probably sub six. Yeah. I mean, strided glued, strided hamstring. I mean, I'd never seen some of the guys that were that ripped naturally. I mean, but again, you're lighter, so it's easier, but right. and you're just with great development and huge backs and big legs. And I was like, geez, please. I, mean, I was really impressed. Yeah. Well, that's, what's interesting about bodybuilding. Cause I feel like it, like getting that lean is like the great equalizer, right? Like obviously when you go the enhanced route, it's different, but like from a, like a natural standpoint, you know, you just don't see guys that compete that heavy. Um, especially at like five, six, I mean, you know, if you had, if you had to get down to one, let's say 58, right. To be as lean as they are like 158 is just not what you think of as like a big person. Now I'm sure given you would have been completely shredded, you would have looked super impressive, but mm-hmm. you know, even with like these like crazy strength, I think of Greg Knuckles or somebody like that, where it's like, this dude is like so strong, but you know, to get contest lean, I mean, I would think he'd probably have to be like 175, like kind of like every other natural around his height, like, you know, so there's the, the strength and size are different, even if you have both. Like, I, I think mm-hmm. there seems to be more genetic freak aspects in terms of strength. Like some people where it's just like, what is going on here? Right. Because it's not just muscle mass, right. It's muscle mass, it's insertions, it's limb length. It's like neurological and, and all that stuff. So if you, if you're top tier in all of those, you just get this crazy beast. Right. So. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And some of the, some of the natural guys, I was just, they either weren't natural or they were just, I mean, but you, like what you're saying earlier, people rise to the top of sports they're gifted in. And if you're mm-hmm. naturally lean and you're naturally muscular anyway, like some of the guys probably are like, you know, how many trainers when I manage big clubs, I would have some, some of these trainers that were just like shredded and you can see like their eight packs through their stomachs, like through their shirts. And you see them in the cafeteria and they eat like two pizzas, bag of chips, right. soda, like, and they just eat garbage. They have no idea how they're that lean and they can't get anyone else that lean. And it's right. just, <laughs> Some people are just really genetically gifted in, in all areas. So you said before you wanted to touch on like how PD usage uh, kind of changed people's perspectives. I don't know if you want to like dive into that anymore or like what you saw. Oh yeah. So what I, what I thought was really interesting is I just, so at that time of not ever doing it myself, it's always left up to like conjecture of, of how much they really help. So a lot of guys, when we would come over from other countries and like some of them would kind of play it off, like, eh, it doesn't really help that much. It's like, they would kind of blow it off. And some other guys are like, 
It really does. And I met this, this guy, his name is like Fernando Vasquez. And I believe he was like the champion for Mexico or something. And he'd come over and start training with us for a while. And he was interesting because he had been very open that he had been on PDs forever and didn't care. And because he's like, everybody does. So why wouldn't you do it? And he had done enormous lifts. I think he's done like 180 snatch and a 220 clean and jerk. And I think he was a 105, pretty close to that. And, um, but he was now trying to make a comeback when he was like 37 and he was like completely natural. And so he, he was goal was just to try and get back to what he had done on PDs. And he wasn't even coming close. And yeah. he was like, his best snatch now was like 150. And his best clean and jerk was like 185. And it looked mm. like garbage and heavy. And he was just like, and so when I was like, do you think it's because it's older? Because he wasn't that much older. I said, or, or do you really think that they really help you that much? He's like, no, no. He goes, I, he goes, I can make you a world champion. If you would, if he's like, if you would take what I'd say, I would make you a world champion. And he was like, you can make a world champion of anybody walking off the street. And I was like, mm, I don't know about that. But because yeah. there's definitely some genetics there. Like you can't take a guy who's 120 pounds and make him into a super or a world champion. Yeah. But I understand this point. Like if you've got a good starting base and you put someone on, on a good pro, like they're going to, it doesn't, when people say it doesn't really help, I think that's one of the dumbest things I've ever heard. And I think that now that I'm on it myself, I'm like, of course it fucking helps. It gives you an enormous advantage. Yeah. Like my progression right now in the we- in the weight room now, it feels like you're like 18 again. Where every really? week you've had five or 10 pounds to the bar every single week. No wow. problem. Like, and it's just like the biggest thing I'm, I'm being cautious of is just my joints. Cause yeah. that was the reason I went on. And I know right. that like <laughs> you can get so much stronger that you can snap tendons or, you know, injure yourself. So I'm being really cautious of my progression. So I just don't get hurt. Yeah. Yeah. That's what Ben Pikulski drives me nuts with that. Cause like there was, I think actually in, it might've been bigger, faster, stronger, or maybe it was pumping iron. I, in one of those videos, um, Ben Pikulski is like, I could make you in a Mr. Olympia, but like, you won't do it. You won't train as hard as me. And he like, he really yeah. seems to believe that it's just what he does training wise and nutrition wise, which is insane. But, um, but yes, yeah, people will think that, which is obviously not true, but they make a tremendous difference. And I think some people I've even talked to recently that really brought that to light is um, Pete Rubish. If you saw him and like how much mm-hmm. of a huge difference he's trying, he's come off everything. Um, Cornelius Parkins, another one, he said he, he did it instead of going natural to enhance. He, I mean, obviously he started natural, but he competed at like, I don't know, two something, maybe two twenty, And then he then went natural and competed. And I mean, he was literally like 35 pounds lighter on stage and he wasn't even doing like insane doses. Um, mm-hmm. And then somebody I saw post recently was Jared Feather. And he was saying, he was like, well, this was me natural. I think it was like three and a half years ago. And this is me enhanced. And he even said he's used just moderate dosages, you know, taking his time. And in three and a half years, he's added over 30 pounds to his stage weight, which means his Jesus. off-season weight is probably oh, like 45, 50, 50 pounds. Yeah, something like that. Um, and again, that's three years of moderate dosage on a complete genetic elite. So like it, it truly is like just mind-boggling how much it can add. Now, I will add the caveat that you have certainly, I'm sure, seen, I've definitely seen people who have used gear who are very unimpressive, right? Mm-hmm. And, and obviously there's a huge genetic aspect there to how you respond to it. I mean, I have a friend who's mm-hmm. a buck 70, he used gear, he got up to like 182 and then he lost it all immediately afterwards, right? So that you see that too. Well, I've got some clients to your point you were on, God, I had one client and I, I shit you not, his whatever doc started him on, I think 500 a week when he wow. first started. He was also on, HGH. I mean, he was on a, a ton of stuff and he doesn't look like he lifts. I mean, yeah. he still looks like he did before. He's just 20 pounds heavier from water retention because that's <laughs> You know what I mean? And, and that's the thing I noticed when I went on TRT. It's like, it's not that 
the things that you would apply as a natural trainee don't work because they do, especially if you have progression in place, you have consistency, you have rest and recovery, and you have obviously the right amount of calories. It absolutely works. The difference is, and I remember reading one time that said, and I don't know if this is true, but it was saying like when they were talking about essentially what PEDs do in terms of speeding up the process. And it was saying like PEDs would basically take, you could accomplish something in three months on PEDs that might take you a year. Well, I would say, I would take it further you're going to accomplish things on pds you can accomplish it naturally ever oh sure like yeah. you know i've got i've known guys that have gone from i knew one guy that went from 180 to 320 and became an elite level power lifter and took lots of gear and could bench over 750 and now he weighs about 210 and he wow. doesn't look like he lifts and i'm just saying like it some guys like they think it's a panacea and it's not if you don't take care of yourself and you don't live a healthy lifestyle you're not really going to notice anything out of it but what i have definitely noticed is just if you live your normal lifestyle like I mean, I could easily, like right now I'm at 195 and I'm easily as lean as I normally am. And I'm probably 175. Like I'm very lean switching right now. to the TRT, you mean? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Wow. All I have done. And so I have two female clients who are also there. So in my health coaching program, they're not actually actually right now because they have some health coaching problems. So like they have some issues we're working through, like thyroid issues and just some disease processes. So they're not actually exercising yet. And they're only doing sub Q based off the recommendation of their practitioner. And if you saw how their body has changed, just by eating healthy, walking each day, they're not even lifting or exercising yet. You wouldn't believe some of the fat loss and just in terms of like abdomen, the hip, like the legs, like it just melts off, but only if they're doing what they need to do. And these aren't even women with like great genetics by any means. Um, and like I said, and they're not super overweight. And then what I've noticed with mine, because I always take all my measurements just to like monitor progress, like nothing has really changed. I would say like like, in, like I'm, I'm probably as big as I've ever been and like, like chest, arms and legs, but my waist is probably as small as it's been like normally like 170, like mm -hmm. it's super tiny. So the thing I noticed that, it, you know, I didn't notice much for like, honestly, the first four weeks, I just noticed like my joints stopped hurting. I had better well-being and I had more energy. I slept better. And I also noticed that with testosterone, I could fast easier. I could never fast or do intermittent fasting before. I would, it would make, I'd be so hungry and so miserable. Now, sometimes like I'll eat and I'll forget to eat like all day. And yeah. so I'll have to eat again at night. And I know a lot of guys on TRT complain about the appetite increase. Like it's been great for me in terms of stabilizing my appetite. Mm -hmm. So I always track my intake and I did before and I still do the same style of training. So all my variables are the same. The only single one thing I have changed is TRT. And the difference, like I have abs, the way my abs look now, like literal, like some guys are like, oh, I have veins in my abs. Like I actually do have veins in my abs yeah. and I actually have abs like most of the time, yeah. even without trying that hard or doing any cardio. And I'm just saying for me, without being TRT, that would have never happened. Like there's no, I'd be 20 pounds lighter than doing cardio like crazy and starving. See, and this is people, I think, I mean, most of the people actually like that I talk about it a lot, but some people do complain that I talk about genetics so much, but like, this is why, because it's like, it is by far, in my opinion, the most important factor, because something that that guy Cornelius Parkin said was that TRT adds 20 pounds. And I said, I hugely disagree with that. The reason being that literally almost every study on testosterone does not comport with that. The studies showing uh, higher doses, five, 600 milligrams show about that much, right? It was way above TRT doses. I have numerous clients on TRT and some of which still, I mean, one guy is in his forties, frankly, like again, would fall into like the doesn't look like he lifts category went on TRT from an actually legitimately low level and said that the main thing he noticed is just that he's got a little bit more energy. And I, I mean, you can look, you know, scan the forums and over and over, you'll find guys who say, 
maybe it added a couple pounds, but it's mostly that they feel better, right? That's why they did it. Mm-hmm. Um, I would suggest that that 20 pounds you put on is because you have those clear elite level genetics. And mm-hmm. maybe you just have such a strong response to androgens that it's causing that. Um, so it's both great that you're putting it out there that, Hey, it made such a big difference. I also don't want people to think that like anybody on CRT is going to get that. Cause I, I believe that that's very atypical. Absolutely. And I, and I do want to stress that as well, because I'm, I'm also a hyper responder and I've known that forever. Like I'm one of those people, like I didn't know what testosterone felt like, so it couldn't have been a placebo effect. And I can tell the difference the first shot I ever took within 10 minutes. It was just like, you drank a pot of coffee. All of a sudden I was like, I was so focused. I was so alert. I was like, what just happened? You know? So for me, I'm very excited to respond really well. And I also do like everything right. Quote unquote, that someone's going to do, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And so like I, I practice a healthy lifestyle and I do all the things that you try and, t- you know, we are trying to teach people. So for me, yeah, it makes a huge difference, but that's why, cause same with some of my clients are like, wow, like you seem like it's really helped you. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah but you've got to do all the things I do to get that. Like, it's not like I eat McDonald's and I drink all the time and I sleep like crap and I barely train. It's like, I still pretty live like with the exception of my workload with my client schedule it's still pretty much the same as when I've always competed. I protect my time. I don't go out. Like I go to bed early. Like I just hang out with my wife. I rarely drink. Like it's pretty much like a bodybuilding lifestyle. So if you're going to get like amazing results, it's, you also have to live a pretty you know structured lifestyle that's consistent. Yeah. I think uh, last comment I would make on that is just that I was, I was thinking about this last week, actually, because we were at the beach with like some of my college friends and I was thinking about like podcasts I'm doing. I knew we had this one coming up and an example is just like, so I have this friend, Josh, who he would be the guy who, if he took it as seriously as we do, you'd say there's no way he's natural. You know, like he literally just like he was like a finance dude in New York. So he just stopped training entirely for like years. Mm-hmm. We saw him at the beach and he was like, yeah, I've been back in a couple of months. The dude got up to like 240. Just yeah. like house. I'm like, I literally could never achieve this thickness mm-hmm. in my life. So to your point, like, you know, you things that you just could never do. It's just, and you know, he was like a high level baseball player. He clearly had, had pretty good genetics. Um, but it, it's just, I used to get annoyed by it. Now I just kind of like marvel at it. Like it's just impressive. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, man, like you just see some of these people and it's just like, wow. And, and obviously, I mean, you're an extreme example of that, but it's, it's just interesting to see it. And I think people tend to want to like, I can understand the resistance to talking about genetics because basically what you're saying is, Hey, you can't do anything about it. And we like to believe that we have full control over like our outcomes in life, which frankly, I think there's a lot of, we don't call it luck, genetics, whatever to it, right. A lot of out of your control. Um, so I understand the resistance to it. And it's not meant to be demotivating to people. It's just meant to be like, Hey, like better to be aware of it than spend like two decades being frustrated, thinking you're doing something wrong, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that's a great point. Cause to that point, like, you know, I was one of those guys, like I said, started when I was 12, read every muscle magazine there was just before the internet, you know, read everything you could possibly do. Like, that's all I did. Like I had a key to the high school weight room. Like I would go there all the time. Like it's, that was my thing. It's all I did. And you get some of these people to that point. The thing that once I got on TRT, I, and you kind of see like how your body changes and you start to know what to look for, for people who are on it. And I would say, and I don't want to be like the, the guy who's like, well, everyone who's in shape is on it. Cause that's not true. But there are people who are in amazing shape that I can guarantee you would look nothing like they look like if they were taking what they're taking. Mm-hmm. And the problem I have with that is because they're also coaches who espouse that they're natural. And then if you're looking between like, say someone like you or you or me versus someone like that, who's like 250 and shredded from head to toe, like, well, I'm going to work out with that guy. Cause you don't know what you're talking about. I'm like, 
that guy's probably gonna be buck sixty without it because I know that guy. So that's the kind of stuff that really irritates me about it. And when you start to see like just the vascularity, like I can see like just the how thick my tricep has become. Like it's just mm. like you just get so dense. Like and when I think of like when I would see like videos or pictures of Doring meets lifting, you know, and I was like. God damn, that guy's just so thick. I mean, he's yeah. like a fucking dinosaur, you know? <laughs> and it's like, you start to look like that. You're like, I'm 195 pounds. And like, you're just so thick from front to back. And you always feel like you have a pump, like yeah. constantly because of the vaso effects of testosterone. Sure. And it's just crazy. It's a totally different world. That's awesome. Um, so let's dive into a little bit of, about diets and, and different responses to different diets. I was looking at some of the stuff and this might be an area we disagree on. I don't know. Uh, we haven't mm-hmm. talked about it previously, so we'll see where it goes. Yeah. But I, I know we both tried an extensive list of pretty much every diet out there. So um, what are maybe some trends that you've found for yourself and clients? So again, being an extremist, I have done literally, honestly, everything from a fruitarian to a carnivore. And I have tracked my labs on it just to see what would happen. And I think, so there, when you talk about genetics, genetics are important because genetics will definitely determine how you respond to nutrition. So for example, um, what really kind of started my whole exploring different dietary routes, because I was pretty much always just like, if you want to call it like paleoish, whole foods, bodybuilder style eating. It's like, that's all I had done. And I'm, I have actually always really done well with low fat, high carb, even though I'm not genetically a very lean person. And for me to get lean, it's really difficult. I actually find that I do much better calories controlled, you know, you know, compared to like, high carb versus low fat or low carb versus high fat. I do better on low fat, always have. When I started running my genetics, that's why. So I have all the Alzheimer's genes. I have the PEMT gene, which disposes you to like uh, fatty liver and gallbladder issues. I have terrible times with high fat diets. So I was trying keto because all of my clients wanted to try keto and I would never give someone before I had done it. So I could at least walk them through the process. And I got really sick. And it was after my show when I'd lost like 50 pounds and I was trying like a a lean gains thing back with keto just because I always want to try it. And I'm like, well, I'm gonna gain my weight back anyway. Let's just see what happens. And uh, about seven weeks in, I started getting really sick, like really nauseous, started getting very pale stools, tart, like tons of, you know, like gallbladder pain, basically. And everyone's like, oh, and I just, just like so exhausted and always nauseous. And everyone's like, oh, it's part of the keto flu. Like you just give this terrible advice. And like, that's not what's happening. Like my gallbladder was like essentially <laughs> shutting down. And then my appendix ruptured and I didn't know it. And I was actually doing a consult with a client and it just felt like a horse kicked me in the stomach. And I was just like, it was the worst pain I'd ever had. And I just basically fell over at my desk and an ambulance came and got me and I went to the hospital and I had, my appendix had actually ruptured like earlier that day. And I was like septic and I was very sick. I was in the hospital for a few days. They took it out. And when they did, they actually found a tumor in my pancreas and they found a tumor in my hip. So I have a malignant tumor on my kidney the size of a golf ball. And I have a benign tumor the size of a golf ball inside my hip. So that kind Currently? of was what spawned, yep, that's kind of what spawned my dietary change. So with the whole push of, you know, plant-based and, you know, anti-cancer and this, and there are some studies with this in, in terms of lower amino acid availability, lowering mTOR, like these type of things in a plant-based world. So I became vegan for five years. I went vegan overnight and I monitor it with scans and lab work. And I still do every single year. I'm still there, um, but it's slightly smaller. So I, I did. The, I didn't have the surgery for multiple reasons. I really get into. It was more basically just I wanted to know what I was doing was working, because it's just like blood work. If they find a problem, you don't know how long the problem's been there. You don't know if it's new. You don't know if it's stable. You don't even receiving. You just see a problem, and so everyone freaks out. So before I'm freaked out, I said, "Let's just get some data first. So I started doing labs and scans every ninety days, and then I started doing them every six months, and now I've gone up to like once a year, and it's never changed, and it's still there, and it's never grown. So when I was talking to my surgeon, who's from Sloan Kettering, he's like. 
you see this sometimes. She's like, it can be malignant, but it's also what we call indolent. So it's not going to do anything. It's never going to grow. It's never going to hurt you, but it is there and it is cancer. Um, he's like, it's slightly encapsulated. So there's no point in taking it out. He's like, we can, if we want to, he's like, but until it changes, and that's why I do routine scans. He's like, until it changes, there's no point. So I just haven't done it. So that being said, that's why I changed all these diets. And when I went vegan, um, I think that it definitely has some benefits. And I'm not going to say it's like the game changer movie where it's like, it's going to increase your performance because it's not. Um, it's not going to be, it's not going to give you an unfair advantage over any other diet because it doesn't. Um, and the, the thing, the reason why I actually stopped being vegan over the course of time between, besides the fact that I apparently have horrendous IBS that does not do well in a vegan diet. Um, and I can't do a keto diet because I can't eat high fat. I do high carb and I do high carb, low fat. And I went back to eating like half plant and half animal. So I just, I do better if I don't eat tons of meat, but I do eat at least like maybe a pound a day. And the rest of my, my protein comes from like, you know, plant products. And I do just fine. And I noticed that even training that way, as long as I kept my protein, like where it usually is, which is, I usually go for one gram a pound is typically what I do. And I'm for fat. I usually do, I usually about 60 to 70 grams a day. That's kind of my threshold. If I start going above that, I'll start getting some fat malabsorption syndromes. So I don't really go that much higher. And my carbs are usually between 250, to 300 a day. And they're all centered around my workout. So all I do is if I went vegan, like I just switch my food choices, but I still hit those same numbers. And if I did this, like when I was fruitarian, I just, and the reason why I was fruitarian is because it's the easiest diet to digest when you have horrendous IBS and can't eat anything. I mean, I got to the point when my IBS was so bad, I actually got down to 155 pounds. I actually lost 30 pounds at one point. And that was after my stomach surgery and I was skin and bones. Like I was, I stopped lifting, but that was actually the only break I've ever taken in 28 or 30 years of training. I had to take six months off. And when I came back, it was, it was, it was really hard to come back and really struggle. So that was why I was trying a different diets. And like I said, I did find a vegan, as long as the calories, everything were the same. I just got tired of taking so many protein shakes and other things just to try and keep my protein up. And I just wanted to eat more real foods. And I just kind of got bored after eating that way. So when I went back to eating meat, I definitely noticed. Um, and if you look at my labs too, my testosterone was actually pretty low when I was vegan, but my free testosterone was the highest it's ever been. My free testosterone was 60 when I was a vegan, but my total mm. testosterone was only 450. And to show how much stress affects testosterone, because I pull mine all the time, um, pre, when I started training for my show in 2015, my testosterone was like 830, we're going to say total, uh, was like 830 something. By the end of the show, it was down to like four, barely, barely 400. And then after my stomach surgery, because that was right after that, it dropped to 200 right after my stomach surgery, because I wanted to test it right after the stomach surgery. Your total testosterone? Yeah, it just tanked. And so it started coming back up, but I've seen, I've, I've had so many different times when I've checked and it's, it's so volatile. Like your levels will go crazy. I mean, I've, I've seen it as high as 900 and I've seen it as low as 200 on me, you know, and that's never even taking anything. That's just how it fluctuates mm. um, via stress. So, but I definitely noticed food choices changes. Anytime I go, I eat less meat or less animal products, my total testosterone drops, but my free goes up. Anytime I start eating more animal products, my total testosterone goes up and my free drops every single time. So I kind of do in the middle. And that's what I found works for me in terms of if I eat 180 grams of protein a day, half comes from plant, half comes from animal. It's pretty easy. And if you look at all the studies, they always say that at least 50% of the protein comes from a higher available source. So that's why I keep 50% of my protein from animals. And I'm doing that just to try and keep mTOR and some of these other growth factors also low as I'm aging because of the tumors. I'm trying to keep them in check so they don't go crazy. And so there's a, there's a lot of stipulations why I do those diets. But I noticed, um, like I said, Probably for me, I work best if I do eat a little bit of animal products. And I do see that even with vegans, um, they actually do better if they eat a little bit of meat. It doesn't mean they have to eat tons of it, but they actually do better if they eat a little bit of it. Um, but I would say that if you're going to do an extremism, either keto 
or even honestly, even just super high carb, low fat, which some guys like to do, you should really have a genetics pull to determine if that is an appropriate uh, move for you. Cause it may not be, like I said, I thought keto was going to be fine. And it, would, it turned out it's the absolute worst thing I could do. And if you look at my genetic reports, so for that, what I did is you can go to 23andMe and just get your ancestry data. And then you can go to Rhonda Patrick's site on the um, foundmyfitness.com and you can upload your raw data and she'll kick out a report that goes through all the genes and the different SNPs. And it actually explains it really well. So you don't have to be a genius to read these. Which and one you did you use, you said? So I used um, Found My Fitness with Dr. Rhonda Patrick. Okay. Because a lot of hers are more like, it's not just longevity, but a lot of hers are performance or nutrient-based. And I actually do really well plant-based. Like I convert plant-based fats to uh, ALA or EPA and DHA really well. Like I actually convert vitamin A, you know, from beta carotene to retinol. I actually do all those things really well according to my genetics. So I actually do veganism really well, but not a lot of people can. Um, I've seen some of my clients try it and just crumble. So it just, I think it depends on the person. It depends on their digestive status to be more, really honestly, more importantly, what they can and can't tolerate. You mentioned that you have the digestive issues with pure vegan. So I would assume from like all the volume and fiber. Uh, but then you said that you still get most of your carbs from plant sources. Is that right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. just- a lot of fruit. So what I do though now is it's more like more low fodmap carbs. So okay. like I don't eat a ton of like Christopher's vegetables because they just kill my stomach. So I primarily just leafy greens and I saute them a lot. Yeah. Um, post-surgery, I have an adhesion and some kinks in my colon now. So I have to be really careful with how much fiber I have. And again, I didn't know that. And I went into a vegan diet where I'm eating like 150 grams of fiber a day and yeah. quickly gave myself uh, ulcerative colitis real fast. So that was fun after a while. Um, and so you just kind of learn how to manipulate these things. And, but yeah, I keep most of my carbs. So I use a uh, Vitargo or uh, Vitargo or Vitargo, how you'll pronounce it. I always called it Vitargo, but it's just a carb powder. Um, that's usually what I use during my workout. I use about 50 grams during that. And I use it. Most of my carb sources are like quinoa and fruit. I do well on those and my blood sugar stays really low um, when I eat those versus other ones. And I don't have any GI issues with those. So those are where most of my carbs come from. Adding up your macros. It sounds like you're only eating like 23 to 2,500 calories. I am right now. Cause I'm cutting a little bit. Now that's, what's interesting is I've always been able to cut on 12 calories per pound pretty easily, but because I'm on my feet all day. So I have a much higher activity level. I've noticed that I could actually start cutting on more 14 to 15 calories per pound. But mm-hmm. I noticed on testosterone, like, if I'm only eating 14 or 1500 calories for 14 to 15 calories per pound. So like say 2,700 to 2,800, I'll get really lean really quickly. It's almost like I start losing weight too fast. So the only reason I'm this low right now is because it's summer and we have a a party going on, you know, coming up. So I was just leaning down for that. Outside of that, normally I'll eat 3000 to 3,500 pretty much every day, just for maintenance. I have a patient who he puts away like the carts and stuff for like a grocery store. And he said he gets like 27 to 29,000 steps a day. I'm like, dude, I get like 4,000 <laughs> steps a day if I'm not like doing anything. Like my like uh-huh. Monday through Thursday, I work a lot of hours. I mean, literally I'll get like 4,000. I, I just like don't know how these people are doing. Unless you have a job like that, or I guess yeah. you're like at the gym or something. I don't know how yep. people are routinely getting like 15, 20,000 every day. I would say on mine, the lowest you'll ever see mine is 15,000. That's a wow. slow day for me. Mike, because the Garmin one I have is, is constantly adjusting up or down based off your current activity. Mm-hmm. And it'll set you a new step goal. And like yesterday, I had 27,000 steps. Like that's a pretty, that was a work day for me. That's a pretty common day for me. On the weekends, it's usually at least that high because then I just, we have a bunch of land. I just do projects the whole time. And and I was like like a long time ago, I made a shift away from doing cardio all the time and just looking at his movements and steps. So now like on the weekends, instead of just doing boring ass cardio, like I'll just go work on my land or we'll go do something just be outside all day. And I'll just, and so for me, I'm just, I just don't ever set. Yeah, man, that's crazy. I think literally on my, 
like whole history of steps. So since like that in the last five years, the highest I've ever hit was 27,000. And that was like, we went to one beach, met a family there, walked for two or three hours, went to another beach, walked mm-hmm. along there, went to the boardwalk. I was like, how, how could this be everybody's day? But yeah, I mean, obviously it increases your caloric requirements to some degree. So I guess there's that benefit. Mm-hmm. I'm usually at 10,000 steps every day by lunch, wow. but pretty, pretty routinely. Wow. Do you, uh, you mentioned a focus on mTOR and I do think mTOR and like autophagy, there's these kind of like buzzwords that people just like say. Um, so I don't get into it too much, but are you not concerned about testosterone increasing phosphorylation of mTOR? Not necessarily because there's some other things you can do to slow it down. And I think too, like, I think people get so hyper-focused on mTOR in terms of like, this really slows it down or this really speeds it up. And I'm like, we don't really know that. We don't, I mean, most people, you're so individually unique anyway, yeah. like IGF one's going to play into that. You know, eating windows will play into that. There's, there's a lot of things that are going to play into mTOR. Total caloric intake is going to play into mTOR. So yeah. that's one of the other reasons you'll see me like, I typically how my nutrition runs is Monday through Friday. I usually stay 23 to 2400 calories so I can keep my calories down most of the time. And then on Saturday and Sunday, I'll bring them up to 3000. That's typically how I maintain and where I operate at with the mindset I'm trying to restrict my calories a little bit. Um, and so I also take 2000 milligrams a day of metformin and I also take 2000 milligrams a day of berberine because when they can compact together, they work on different portions of mTOR and IGF. They don't do the same thing. A lot of people, they do, they're completely different actually. They obviously alternate on slightly different pathways. And I also take statin because statins combined with, met, with metformin will almost shut down the mTOR like almost to a screeching halt. So I do a lot of things to do that on purpose um, and it's still never affected my progress. So either they're not really working or mTARs are not really that manipulative, if that makes sense. So I don't you taking, really honestly worry about too much. Are you taking uh, ubiquinol or ubiquinone for being on the statin? Yes. Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. So mm-hmm. I take CoQ10. So the reason for that is I pulse the statin. I don't routinely take it all the time okay. because if you look at the research on even just combining stat like metformin with a lipophilic based statin, like you see, because they both shut down mTOR, they both shut down IGF-1, they, they stop fatty acid synthesis. Like they block a lot of things together in terms of what cancer cells will use for growth or metastasis. So I purposely do a lot of these things. I do take some other off-label drugs that are, you know, like like I take uh, febenzenol, which is, is a type of drug. It's actually an antiparasitic drug, but off-label, um, it basically acts as a glucose blocker for cancer cells. So I do a few different drug therapies that I alternate in, in conjunction with this. And I do periods of fasting and, and for the autophagy in terms of like the self-eating process. But I don't want to get into the whole time, tangent of that because doing this for cancer is entirely different than doing it for longevity mm-hmm. because there's, it's so much more intense. It, I just, so I don't want to get into that. But at the same time, it's not affecting my progress. And so I see a lot of people like, oh, I started taking metformin. Now I can't get any bigger. I'm like, that's not doing anything. Or it's like, you know how much metformin? I've taken up to like 3,000 milligrams of metformin at once, just like throughout the day, just to see if I ever got the GI effects. You only get GI effects when you have a bad gut. I mean, that's how it works. Like if I start eating like poor food choices or honestly bread on metformin, I will get the worst IBS ever. But if I just cut it out, I'm totally fine. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people, it's it's not as responsive as people think it is, I don't think. Yeah. And just for people listening, maybe don't know the reason I asked is about the uh, ubiquinol or ubiquinone is just because when you do take a statin, it's been shown to deplete CoQ10 levels. So it's often recommended to replace those. Um, and ubiquinol more so than Q- CoQ10 increases CoQ10 levels in the blood. So a lot of times people recommend it, especially with age, they find the conversions a little bit worse. So just for people who are curious about that. Uh, well, I was just going to comment that 
you know, the, the whole genetic thing with diet is interesting. Cause it's like, of course, I, I think it, we talked about how like genetics influence pretty much everything. Of course, there's some genetic variation with like how people respond to different diets, right? There's thoughts on like, that could be like culturally, right? When you have like, you know, tens of thousands of years in a certain area that, you know, that like, where your background is could affect it. Um, I, I don't know how confident I am as far as, I think it's like emerging, right? Rhonda Patrick does talk about like, well, this, you know, uh, SNP has been shown to alter this. And I think it's going there. Um, I don't, and again, it, it could just be an area I haven't looked into enough. Um, but as far as like, okay, we clearly have the answers for like, if you have this, if you're on this side of the genetic spectrum, this diet works better for you and you can tolerate carbs. Cause I, I definitely seen people get very gimmicky with that where, mm-hmm they're prescribing, you know, there was like the, uh, blood type diet and I'm not saying that's the same thing, but I guess I'm just saying, I'm not confident enough in my knowledge there to say if it's kind of like BS or not. So that might just kind of putting that out there. Yeah. And I, in, to your point, it's not that that the nutrigenomic side of that is not an exact science yet. And so when you look at some of those, even if you look up, like even on Rhonda Patrick's reports, if you look at some of them, like the sample size be like, well, out of 250 people, I'm like, that's a pretty small sample. So when you're looking at a lot of those things, you do have to take it for a grain of salt and, and realize too, like, it's not diagnostic. It's, it's just saying like, this is some propensity, like, especially if you're looking at a disease process, like Alzheimer's, for example, like some people don't want to pull their genetic report because they don't want to see the Alzheimer's like, well, just because you have it, you're guaranteed to get it. Yeah. But wouldn't you want to know that you have a propensity for it? So you could live a healthy lifestyle to maybe potentially avoid it versus just going into it blindly. I see that a lot, that a lot of people just don't like to know data on that. I'm like, and I get it. You know, when I found a couple spots on myself, like, like I said, with the tumors and stuff, there's a lot of things you don't want to learn about, you know, in the beginning and you just want to ignore it, but it doesn't help. So yeah. I think that, you know, just learning that is really helpful. Yeah, no, I definitely fall into that category of like testing too much, probably, right? You, you get some, uh, actually I saw Peter Atia. he said he and his wife do uh, like full body MRIs yearly. Mm-hmm. Which I know some other people like really disagree with that. And I think especially like if you're like, let's say you take an 80 year old, right. And you get what they call like incidental lomas, right. Where it's like, Mm -hmm. there's so many things you're going to find that are going to not going to kill this person before something else kills them and just like leave them Mm -hmm. alone. Um, Mm -hmm. But I'm also somebody who likes to know like everything. So I've had so much blood work done and I probably over and analyze things. Um, There's there's probably a happy medium in there. (laughs) For sure. I mean, yeah. Like when, when they first, uh, and you should never pull your lab reports and interpret your health condition or sick or like if you have the flu or like mm-hmm. surgery. Yeah. And I remember like when my appendix ruptured, you know, I'm like sitting like in my hospital bed, like, and they still the way our hospital works is like, as soon as your labs are done, they immediately send you an email letting you know your labs are in and you don't review them with the doctor. You just get the results. Yeah. So I'm like sitting in the hospital bed. I'm like, oh <laughs> shit. And I'm just like looking through this. I'm like, look at this. And I was like, I'm like looking at this. I'm like, that's leukemia. I'm like, no, that's a viral infection. <laughs> you know, I'm just right. like, oh, all right, well. So you can definitely make yourself uh, probably more sick than you probably really are. Yeah. You know what I mean? From the placebo effect by looking at the, or nocebo effect by looking things up. Yeah, for sure. So Matt, we covered a lot there. Was there anything that you wanted to discuss that we didn't get into? I think, oh, I think one thing would be interesting is terms of like, I don't really touch the whole failure debate. I think that's really funny. Mm. I think it's a pretty simple discussion, but you either fail or you don't, but that's another long story. I think one thing that's interesting is I think, from a training perspective of looking at, you know, being natural to now enhanced and like what over those course of those times, what I felt like really worked best and, and everything like I said, when you're doing it naturally, I feel like it just works so much better when you're enhanced and it works faster. But I also see like, I think almost anything works when you're enhanced for the most part, especially if you have good genetics. Like yeah. I see guys trained like idiots and they still look great just because yeah. they're enhanced. But what I would say is 
one of the things maybe to take away for people in training, one of the things that worked really well for me, how we got in terms of Olympic lifting and you're training two to three times a day, you know, like we would train three times a day during the off season, but most of the time it's two times a day, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And you would train once a day on Saturday and once a day on Tuesday. So we're getting like eight workouts a weekend. And what I really noticed back then was that frequency, like as our frequency and volume went up, I got enormous. As our frequency and volume tapered down for competition, I shrunk. So I knew, I learned back then that training frequency and volume are obviously very important. I think then the most important thing is as you age and as if you're a really stressed individual and you don't sleep that well, you can't train that much. And you can't train often because you can't recover. So when pe- when you're looking at these different types of training methodologies in terms of should I do a total body? Should I do a split? Like a lot of it's going to depend on your training frequency and how many times a week you're going to have to train. And it's going to depend on your recovery ability. And what I've actually found what always worked really well for me and I see it work really well for my clients is more of an undulating periodization model and even more like total body-ish throwing in with some splits. And what I mean by that is like, for example, with my own training routine, I will do really heavy upper body on Monday and really heavy lower body on Tuesday. And it's more like sets of three, sets of four, those type of things, like five by three, six by two, just really working on limit strength and just really like trying to work my over strength, right? And then like Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, it's more traditional type bodybuilding type stuff. And I'll focus more on that. So for me, I've always noticed personally, if I do high rep and like low rep types training in the same cycle, even in the same week, I grow like crazy. And I've seen that with my clients too. They actually do really well with that. Um, so just if people are looking at training of changing uh, their training or looking how to train or maybe looking at doing something different, if you're not trying that, I've always found that that worked really well. And that was something that I kind of took away from Olympic lifting is we would do total body all day and I would do bodybuilding at night. So technically I would do four workouts a day. And so I just noticed like we got enormous when we did that and you would just eat and sleep and grow. So I've noticed that now as I age, like that type of, training philosophy of mostly total body, most workouts with a little bit of specialization seems to work most obviously great for me. Most things work for me. Um, and other people, I will think, I'll tell you things that don't work really well for me is when I do, when I train a body part once per week, mm-hmm. well, it seems like all my other body parts start shrinking pretty fast. But yeah. if I do total body, just a little bit of volume each session, I seem to get really big really quickly. So just for whatever that's worse for takeaway, I, I see a lot of people when they feel like they're stuck, they're like, well, maybe I should be doing a different split. And it's like, probably just not eating enough, sleeping enough, training frequently enough, yeah, enough volume, you know? And to like, also say like, if you feel like you're stuck after four or five years of training, not to jump on PEDs yet and really start pushing it longer. Cause I made gains up until I was 40. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it may not be in the same area, like I might shift it around, but you still make progress. I think um, two comments on that I would say is as far as the, it's interesting. Like when I was getting into this, like 15 plus years ago, splits were talked about a lot right i mean that was in magazines like what's the split and it was like what's the ideal split and i'm glad to see that that's almost never talked about as far as like i see nowadays people do talk about again this could just be the circles i run in but it's like you know what's the frequency you need and like there's so many ways that you can you know kind of um parry out that that volume right versus like you know it's got to be chest back then arms this day like i don't see people talk about that as much anymore which i think is good um, but then also I, one caveat is with your frequency, as far as like the two, three times a day, would you agree that part of the reason that was possible is because the Olympic lifting doesn't have much of an eccentric component. So there was a lot less damage being done to the muscle. That's actually a great point. And I'm glad you brought that up because I argue with people about it a lot. Cause they're like, Olympic lifters are big and jacked from the Olympics. I'm like, no, they're not. Most Olympic lifters, if they don't do any accessory work, you wouldn't even know they lift. I've seen world champions that can snatch more than me and can deadlift 600 pounds that look like they can't lift a broomstick. I'm saying like, 
and these aren't guys that are enhanced either. These are even natural guys. So I'm saying like, no, and that's what, so kind of how our workout structure is your first workout of the morning, you only did one or two movements. So it's like squat and press. That's it. And you come back like two hours later and you do like a lift and a pull. So you might do power snatch and a pull. That's it. And if we're training three days or three times a day, you come back in the afternoon, clean and jerk and a pull. That's it. And it was really more modeled after the Bulgarian model where they would come in and just do like max out on one lift, come back 45 minutes later, max them. And they would do that all day, every day. And we were natural. And so like our coaches from Romania and <laughs> try to put us under, and we would just break all the time, like six or seven weeks in, like everything would be broken. So yeah, I, I think that that's definitely part of it. Yeah. Yeah. I did the uh, like modified Bulgarian that was kind of popularized maybe four or five years ago with Greg Knuckles and all them. And I was squatting five to six days a week. And I mean, it was great, but that's because I would work up to like a working max that day, right? Not going to true failure. So mm -hmm. obviously like you can do it, but you, you got to change things around the other variables so that you don't break, as you said. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For sure. And I, I actually do like training a little bit like that. And I'd say shout out probably to Jeff Nippard because I do like his total body setup. Um, the way he, he had this total body, um, routine thing he'd put out a while ago. And I, I always like to look at other people's ideas. And it was very similar to what I had created myself when we we're doing Olympic thing, what I do now, as I basically, I pick a primer movement for the first movement of the day. So if it's a chest focus day, it's gonna be really heavy bench press. And I might do one more exercise for chest and the rest is going to be an exercise for each, you know, total body. Right. So it's probably like five or six exercises, each one. And then maybe one day sets of three, one day sets of 15. So typical UDT format. But, um, I noticed that, you know, if I'm only doing one or two movements for one muscle group, I could put so much more intensity and effort into it. And I mm -hmm. find like when I'm doing traditional body workouts, bodybuilding workouts, we're maybe doing like 10 or 15 sets for the same muscle for the same workout. Like I'm just pacing. I'm trying yeah. to pace myself. There's no way you're going to failure like that, yeah. but I could go into failure, like true failure. If I'm just doing one or two sets, I will generally kind of do what you're doing is I'll work my way up. So those, if I'm doing five by five, those first four, like they're working up weights. My last set's almost more of like a Dorian Yates thing where he would work up a bunch and then one set was all out. That's typically how I train. And I find that I can recover better that way and I'm not a sore. And I also found just because I'm getting older and my knees are getting shit that from squatting like every day for, I don't know, a couple of decades, like they're done. So I've noticed um, just by just doing one extra leg exercise every day and wrapping my knees, like I can train like, like super hard again, but I can't really handle leg days anymore because my knees just get way too trashed. And I think that's largely just because I'm walking so much. I notice those days where I'm like 25,000 steps after leg day, my knees are generally swollen yeah. and I, just a little bit. I mean, they're really sore. So it, it's probably some of that too. Yeah, I, uh, I made a video, I don't know, maybe two months ago now. Um, and it was like how bodybuilders actually train. And, you know, the, the studies actually show better results oftentimes with straight sets. Um, but again, I think studies are great, but you know, you're oftentimes looking at beginners and there's a lot of other things you're not looking at long-term almost every bodybuilder, especially back in like the nineties and like early two thousands. Right. It was like, all right, pick a weight, ramp up, do one or two max sets next exercise. Like, you know, like Ronnie Coleman wasn't doing five sets with the same weight on dumbbell and then five sets of the same weight on barbell bench. Like that's, I just don't know almost anybody who does that. They ramp up, they hit maybe two top sets and then they go on to the next thing. And like you said, even just mentally, even if you can do that, it's just like, it's just draining. It's just like, I'm going to do the same weight, five sets all out. I mean, it's just, you know, I don't like that way. And I've, it's been forever since I did 15 plus sets of a single body part in one workout. Mm -hmm. I just never do that anymore. That's probably my weekly volume right now is 15 to 18 sets like yeah. a week, but that includes those workups. 
So if you're looking at all out, that might only be like five, maybe five or six all out sets per body part per week. But that's definitely enough. Like I grow crazy from, I don't need any more. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm I'm actually trying to reduce my volume right now. I'm generally trying to do between three, no more than four sets per like all out sets per body part per workout. Like I've substantially lose my back and I've seen much better progress from it. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that that counts the ramping sets because that was another big debate. And like there was an article that was a little hyperbolic, I feel like, but it was like, you know, bodybuilders do one set and it's like, it's, you know, again, a little of an exaggeration, but it was like, they'll count it as somebody will say that was 20 sets and some people will say that was five mm-hmm. sets, right? And it's like, those ramping sets are important. They're doing something, mm-hmm. but it's not at all the same as 18 sets to failure, right? Well, but also think about if you're doing five by five, like say you're doing five by five, four or five in the squat, you're going to warm up for a while. How many warm up sets are you going to do before you get there? What, yeah. Like five or six. And then you do five working sets. You just did 12 sets for legs and your yeah. first exercise. And now you need a whole <laughs> leg day. Yeah. I calculated a client's volume one time. A trainer sent me, she was doing like a hundred, like almost a hundred sets by the time you included her working and ramping sets in a workout per workout. And then the workouts were like 90 minutes long. I'm like, by the third week, she's just like, just destroyed. And I was like, well, this is an insane amount of volume. Right, right. All right, Matt. So uh, obviously you do train people, right? You've got some content out there. Where can people find your stuff? You don't really find me that much because I kind of like try to be a recluse a little bit on social media. I'm only on YouTube because I like to watch content. And I hate Facebook and I hate everything else. Um, <laughs> but you can catch us on our company page, which is it's called bodysolutionskc.com. That's the studio that my partner and I own. Um, and we work with primarily people in person online, but, um, that's not really, I appreciate it. Today's really more just by getting the message out, but yeah, you won't see me on social media because I hate social media. <laughs> I've recently awesome. deleted most of my accounts and I've never been happier. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right, man. Well, thank you for taking the time. Thank you for kind of getting that experience yeah. out there. Uh, and I'm sure we'll, we'll talk in the future. Yeah. Right on, man. Thank you.